Welcome to Criminal Sentencing Law. In this podcast, we examine the purposes of sentencing in New South Wales, as set out in Section 3A of the Crime Sentencing Procedure Act. We will also discuss the High Court case of Bean No. 2 against the Queen, a key common law authority which outlines the purposes of sentencing and how they interrelate and conflict. So firstly, to discuss the purposes of sentencing. The purposes of sentencing are set out in Section 3A of the Crime Sentencing Procedure Act. When a lawyer is making submissions on sentence, they should explicitly refer to the relevant purposes of sentencing from this section and apply these to the facts of the case and the offender's circumstances. Section 3A provides that the purposes for which a court may impose a sentence on an offender are as follows. Firstly, to ensure that the offender is adequately punished for the offence. Secondly, to prevent crime by deterring the offender and other persons from committing similar offences. Third, to protect the community from the offender. Fourth, to promote the rehabilitation of the offender. Fifth, to make the offender accountable for his or her actions. Sixth, to denounce the conduct of the offender. And lastly, to recognise the harm done to the victim of the crime and the community. The legislation largely codifies the principles set out at common law in the case of Veen against the Queen No. 2, a 1988 High Court of Australia case. Any sentencing court must apply these purposes to a case and may attach differing weights to each purpose, such as rehabilitation, deterrence or protection of the community, depending on the facts of the case. As Chief Magistrate of New South Wales, Judge Graham Henson said, In every sentencing exercise, no matter how minor, the court must consciously or subconsciously assess the level of criminality against the purposes of sentencing. The tragic cases of Veen No. 1 and Veen No. 2 are illustrative of the purposes of sentencing and in particular how these purposes can be at odds with each other. The appellant, Robert Charles Vincent Veen, known as Bobby Veen, had suffered from alcohol-induced brain damage and had uncontrollable urges which led him to commit violent crimes. Veen was Indigenous and a member of the Stolen Generations, who grew up with his adoptive family in Burke, New South Wales, and had been abducted and molested by three men at the age of 11. Following this, Veen started wagging school, and the Aboriginal Protection Board removed him from the Veen family and sent him to a boy's home where he was abused and beaten. At the age of 14, Veen moved to King's Cross and started work as a male sex worker. In 1975, Veen was charged with murder, but convicted of manslaughter, having regard to diminished responsibility, which is now known as the partial defence of substantial impairment of the mind. This partial defence reduces the conviction of murder to one of manslaughter. Veen had been working on the streets of King's Cross and had been picked up by the victim. After Veen asked for payment, the victim said, No, you black bastards are all the same, always wanting handouts. Veen took a knife from the kitchen rack and stabbed the other man to death, leaving the body with over 50 stab wounds. Veen had a prior criminal record consisting of a number of stabbing and other offences. At trial, Veen was initially sentenced to life imprisonment, but this sentence was quashed by the majority of the High Court and a sentence of 12 years imprisonment was substituted. The majority of the High Court noted that protection of the community though an important factor in determining sentences in New South Wales, is not of itself a justification for a sentence of preventative detention. Justice Mason, however, dissenting, recognised that in some instances, a sentence of life imprisonment may be both proportionate and accord with the principle of protection of the community.
Unfortunately, in 1983, Veen was released and within 10 months of his release, he stabbed a man to death with a bread knife. The homicides bore striking similarities to each other. Both involved Veen performing sex work for reward, and in both cases, the victim was a homosexual man. Veen was again charged with murder and again found guilty of manslaughter, based on the partial defence of diminished responsibility. He was sentenced to life imprisonment. Veen appealed this sentence unsuccessfully to the Court of Criminal Appeal and then again to the High Court of Australia. So again, Bobby Veen comes before the High Court, this time in the case of Veen against the Queen No. 2. In that case, the majority of the High Court of Australia stated that the obvious difference between Veen No. 1 and the present case is that it was then uncertain, but it is now known, that the applicant has a propensity to kill when he is under the influence of alcohol and under stress. The High Court also recognised the difference in mitigating factors between V number 2 and V number 1, as well as the circumstances. In the second homicide, there was no evidence of provocation. The prisoner was no longer young, and his criminal record had been supplemented by the first conviction of manslaughter. The first important principle emanating from the case of V number 2 is the principle of proportionality. The principle of proportionality is reflected in Section 3A of the Crime Sentencing Procedure Act, which now provides that one of the purposes for which a court may impose a sentence is to ensure that the offender is adequately punished for the offence. The principle of proportionality is a common law principle of sentencing in Australia, which prohibits judges or magistrates from awarding sentences that go beyond that which is commensurate to the gravity of the crime being punished. This includes being proportionate to both the gravity of the offence and the responsibility of the offender for the offence. The High Court in V No. 2 held that The principle of proportionality is now firmly established in this country. It was the unanimous view of the Court in V No. 1 that a sentence should not be increased beyond what is proportionate to the crime in order merely to extend the period of protection of society from the risk of recidivism on the part of the offender. It is one thing to say that the principle of proportionality precludes the imposition of a sentence extended beyond what is appropriate to the crime merely to protect society. It is another thing to say that the protection of society is not a material factor in fixing an appropriate sentence. The distinction in principle is clear between an extension merely by way of preventative detention, which is impermissible, and an exercise of the sentencing discretion having regard to the protection of society among other factors, which is permissible. The High Court continued in its discussion of the purposes of sentencing that, however, sentencing is not a purely logical exercise, and the troublesome nature of the sentencing discretion arises in large measure from unavoidable difficulty in giving weight to each of the purposes of punishment. The purposes of criminal punishment are various, protection of society, deterrence of the offender and of others who might be tempted to offend, retribution and reform. The purposes overlap and none of them can be considered in isolation from the others when determining what is an appropriate sentence in a particular case. They are guideposts to the appropriate sentence, but sometimes they point in different directions. And so, a mental abnormality which makes an offender a danger to society when he is at large but which diminishes his moral culpability for a particular crime, is a factor which has two countervailing effects, one which tends towards a longer custodial sentence, the other towards a shorter one. These effects may balance out, 
but consideration of the danger to society cannot lead to the imposition of a more severe penalty than would have been imposed if the offender had not been suffering from a mental abnormality. The case of Veen is also important in the High Court's discussion of the weight to be given to a defendant's prior criminal record and how a criminal record might relate to the objects of specific or general deterrence and the protection of society. The High Court stated that a subsidiary principle is that the antecedent criminal history of an offender is a factor which may be taken into account in determining the sentence to be imposed, but it cannot be given such weight as to lead to the imposition of a penalty which is disproportionate to the gravity of the instant offence. To do so would impose a fresh penalty for past offences. The antecedent criminal history is relevant, however, to show whether the instant offence is an uncharacteristic aberration or whether the offender has manifested in his commission of the instant offence a continuing attitude of disobedience of the law. In the latter case, retribution, deterrence and protection of society may all indicate that a more severe penalty is warranted. It is legitimate to take account of the antecedent criminal history when it illuminates the moral culpability of the offender in the instant case, or shows his dangerous propensity, or shows a need to impose punishment to deter the offender and other offenders from committing further offences of a like kind. The High Court in V No. 2 also recognised the second subsidiary principle, material to that case, that the maximum penalty prescribed for an offence is intended for cases falling within the worst category of cases for which the penalty is prescribed. This comes from the case of Ibs. That does not mean that a lesser penalty must be imposed if it is possible to envisage a worse case. Ingenuity can always conjure up a case of greater heinousness. A sentence which imposes the maximum penalty offends this principle only if the case is recognisably outside the worst category. Finally, the majority of the High Court applied these principles to the facts of V number 2. The High Court acknowledged... The killing of the victim was particularly horrible in the manner and violence of its execution. There was an intentional taking of his life. There was no provocation. The mental abnormality which entitled the prisoner to the verdict of manslaughter under Section 23A of the Crimes Act is such that the prisoner is a danger to society when he is at large. The doubt which attended the proposition in V number 1 has now been dramatically dispelled. The circumstances show that the case was in the worst category and that the appellant's mental abnormality makes him a grave danger to society if he goes at large. The tragedy of Veen's life, which appears from the moving testimony of his foster sister, brother Loth and Miss Fitzwalker, and which must excite sympathy for him, has to be balanced against the exigencies of the criminal law, especially the protection of society. The High Court ultimately found that the sentence of imprisonment for life imposed on Bobby Veen was not manifestly excessive and dismissed his appeal. Veen was eligible for parole in 2003 but not released until after he had spent 40 years in jail in 2015. He died just 18 months later in 2017. To summarise, the key principle stemming from Veen is that a sentence must be proportionate to the gravity of the offence and the culpability of the offender. No sentence may exceed the boundaries set by the principle of proportionality. In addition to the principle of proportionality, there are three other key sentencing principles in New South Wales. These are the principle of parity, in other words, treating like cases alike and different cases differently. The principle of totality, in other words, the total sentence where there are multiple terms 
needs to be just and appropriate to the whole of offending. And also the principle of imprisonment as a last resort. Returning to the principles of sentencing in Section 3A, the different weights that a court will give to deterrence, rehabilitation and so on will depend on a number of factors. It may depend on the nature of the crime, for example, was it a domestic homicide or a drug offence? Other factors that this may depend on include the youth of the offender and their prospects of rehabilitation, as well as the harm and loss suffered by any victims. The concept of sentencing cannot be divorced from the notion of punishment. Punishment can be defined as an authority's infliction of a penalty on an offender. Punishment is regularly justified on the grounds of it being deserved by the offender, or a form of retribution, or of it deterring an offender or others from committing a crime, and also that it might rehabilitate or reform the offender to prevent the offender from committing a similar crime or other crimes in the future. Punishment is also justified on the grounds of protection of the community, incapacitation, denunciation and restoration or reparation. Some of these grounds for punishment include, firstly, retribution. Retribution is backward-looking in that it punishes the offender for what she or he has already done. An aspect of retribution is the concept of just deserts. The idea that the offender deserves to be punished or to suffer for what they have done and that the punishment inflicted should be proportionate to the offender's culpability and the gravity of the offence. There's also deterrence. Deterrence can be separated into specific deterrence and general deterrence. Specific deterrence is aimed at the individual, whereas general deterrence is aimed at others. Specific deterrence seeks to prevent the offender from committing further offences by demonstrating to the offender the adverse consequences of their criminal offending. General deterrence seeks to prevent others who may have similar motives and impulses from committing similar offences. This comes from the case of the Queen against Radich. Then there's rehabilitation. Rehabilitation is a forward-looking punishment. It recognises and seeks to remediate the psychiatric, psychological, environmental and social forces that contributed to the offender's offending. Restoration or restorative justice focuses on repairing the harm caused by criminal activity as well as addressing the underlying causes of the offender's criminal behaviour. Restoration is linked to rehabilitation. Examples of restoration include mediation between offenders and victims, sentencing conferences and circle sentencing. Finally, incapacitation. Incapacitation seeks to restrain the offender in order to render her or him incapable of reoffending. There is an increasing push amongst politicians to incapacitate individuals not for the offences that they have committed in the past, but on risk-based predictions of whether or not and how they might offend in the future. Examples of risk-based predictions in and beyond the criminal law include policies relating to the detention of sex offenders or terrorism-related offenders, and character test visa cancellations made under Section 501 of the Migration Act, some of which are predicated on the risk of future criminal activity. Serious crime prevention orders in New South Wales are another example of forward-looking orders which can restrain a person's or business's activities for up to five years with the object of preventing or disrupting criminal activity we will examine the preventative detention of high-risk and terrorism-related offenders in a later podcast. So that concludes the fourth podcast of Criminal Sentencing Law, in which we looked at the purposes of sentencing and how they interrelate and conflict. In the next podcast, we're going to look at different sentencing options in New South Wales and how these are going to be reformed 
under new government changes to sentencing options in New South Wales, which are anticipated to commence in October 2018.